Welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, the Yemeni war has created the world's largest humanitarian disaster. Over 80% of the population is at risk, with particular vulnerabilities to children. And the COVID pandemic has worsened conditions. What are the causes of the war? Why is it not ending? And how can it be resolved? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. Since 2014, when the Houthi faction seized this capital city of Sana'a and compelled President Abruda Mansar Hadi to flee to the southern city of Aden, Yemen has been plunged into an ongoing civil war. It has become the most salient battlegrounds for the ongoing rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And it's been described as the world's worst humanitarian disaster by the United Nations. And the war continues to rage on. On today's show, we will explore the causes of the war, the impact of foreign intervention, and a pathway to a resolution. Our guests are Hamid Sali, who is the Associate Dean of International Education and Senior International Officer and Professor of Political Science at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is a commentator for Arabic media. And Charles Schmitz, who is the Professor of Geography at Towson University, in Baltimore, Maryland. He is an affiliated scholar with the Middle East Institute in Washington, DC. He's the author of the publications, Negotiating Yemeni Peace, Deep Divisions and Hard Realities, No Winners in Yemen, and the Historical Dictionary of Yemen. Thank you both for joining us. Charles Schmitz, I'll start with you. Could you give us a description of where the war stands now and and some of the reasons why this war continues, you know, persists and seems to not have much of a resolution? Well, first, thank you for having me. So uh, the war's heated up. You know, Biden, of course, pledged to end the war in Yemen, to end U.S. support for the Saudi effort in Yemen. And, uh, of course, those were campaign pledges that didn't have a whole lot of details in them. And uh, since Biden's election, the war has heated up. And the big front that heated up was a, a Houthi push uh, towards Marib, which is the eastern province in, in Yemen. It's the last sort of stronghold of the, the Hadi regime in the north, in the former north of Yemen. It is strategic for a number of reasons, one of which is that uh, Yemen does not have a lot of oil and gas, but what remains of it is out there. I think the, the Houthi sensing that international environment was changing and there was the possibility of, of actually some negotiations. They pushed forward to try and uh, create facts on the ground. They ran into a, a lot of resistance. Uh, and, and what's interesting here is that the, um, the Yemeni forces in, in Marib, uh, tribal forces and the, and the Yemeni military, and a lot of southern forces that have come to reinforce them as well, they've been holding pretty well. It's, a, it's been a serious onslaught. They've been holding well. Um, and uh, the Saudis have been using their air power to try and hold the Houthi off. Uh, and this, of course, is with the uh, U.S. Uh, what, at least uh, they're not, the U.S. is not objecting to this. The U.S. had said they didn't want the Saudis to be uh, bombing in Yemen. But, uh, you know, the nature of this part of the conflict here, the Houthis are certainly pushing the issue. And um, so, you know, the Saudis are, and their support is critical for the defensive of Marib. The government forces, the, the Hadi side has, there's, there's many, many aligned, many, many aligned forces within Hadi, but 
Um, as a result of the Houthi push on Marib, I should say that the Houthi have also attacked Saudi Arabia many times. They've been really pushing uh, Saudi Arabia. They seem to be trying the, their best possible uh, to provoke the Saudis, uh, to show the Saudis that they can attack with impunity. I think as well, you know, as a, as a negotiating card, is to say that you're not going to be able to to push us over, uh, you know, we don't want negotiations that bad. We're in a pretty good position here and, and you're in a, a difficult situation. Then on the ground on other fronts outside of Marib, in, in Taiz and in the north in Hadja, um, the, the, there have been advances by critical and important advances for the first time uh, by the anti-Houthi forces. Um, and particularly in Taiz, which is uh, an area that the Houthi have uh, blockaded. It's a main city in, in what we call Lower Yemen. It's, it's still in North Yemen, but uh, it's called Lower Yemen. And it's not seen as a, as a Houthi stronghold, but they've uh, had a blockade on the city for the course of the war so far. Uh, and the Hadi side is close to breaking that, which would be a significant uh, uh, shift in the war. It would, be a, it would be a good development for the city of Taiz. And uh, the other development is in the south, uh, where you have some forces that are uh, that that have fought Hadi, um, the the Southern Transitional Council, uh, people who are backed by the Emirates and pushing for Southern independence. Um, you know, they they've said some interesting things. They negotiated in Riyadh peace with the Hadi forces, and there actually is a combined government in Aden right now. Uh, but they retain military control of the city. Uh, and they have said that if Marib falls, they will negotiate with the Houthi, uh, which was a, that's a bold stance. I mean, basically, they were saying that, you know, we'll let the Houthi take the north and we'll take the south. The Houthi responded by saying that uh, we will not negotiate with mercenaries. We will deal directly with the foreign powers that are backing the, the mercenaries in Yemen, who are Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates. So the, the Houthis are... Um, claiming uh, control of all of Yemen, and uh, and they don't seem willing to to negotiate with uh, with anybody at this point. So that's sort of the roundup, a heated up front with all sides kind of trying to to, to create facts on the ground uh, before some sort of anticipated negotiations. So now you've referenced a number of different factions within the uh, Yemeni war, so that everybody you know is clear on this. You've got the Hadi government, that is the officially recognized governments, recognized by the United Nations and UN resolutions have, have identified this, and they have the backing of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's allies. You mentioned the Emirates who are linked with Saudi Arabia. The Houthis, who as a resistance, or as a rebel force, had seized control of the capital, um, and their major backer is Iran, from my understanding. And the challenge here is that the Houthis control the capital city, which is in the former North Yemen. The, the country was unified. We'll get into that in a, you know in a moment. You know as to um, you know how much of that is is part of the conflict. And then ultimately, the United States position um, has traditionally been supportive of the Saudis, uh, in opposition to the Houthis. So with that in mind, Hamoud Sali, what role have international actors played at either complicating or prolonging this conflict. Or I've heard in many places, if the foreign actors just got out of Yemen, the Yemenis could figure out a way to a peace agreement. Is that a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment. Uh, but I think we should take it a little bit further and going back deep, not really in history, but uh, 
the role of what uh, the International Monetary Fund did uh, back in 2000, I believe, uh, uh, in 2000s, maybe I think it's 2013 or so. I'm sorry, before 2011, this is around 2010, where it provided a law for a loan to, to Yemen on condition, like what the IMF does. You know, uh, there are some reforms we want you to do. And as a consequence, uh, that trickled down into uh, lifting uh, the uh, subsidized uh, items, uh, fall in particular, and it created sort of a conditions uh, for what later become the Arab Spring, or however we, we define that in 2011. So the role of international organization, IMF in this particular, can be looked at uh, from the perspective that the economic problems uh, that Yemen was facing at the time sort of contributed to the current crisis. The second thing, when you look at how it, back around uh, to November or October 2011, when uh, the Security Council uh, sort of came in, and endorsed at the time uh, the plan that would, uh, for example, uh, remove uh, Saleh from power, uh, the president, with condition that it's very hard to read it because the, the UN, according to the UN envoy, Alban Omar, uh, did not endorse what the JCC was pushing, that uh, Saleh at the time was in Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, was asking for full immunity but uh, according to uh, the uh, UN envoy, uh, Jamal Ben Omar at the time, uh, he believed that will be against international law. So instead, uh, what the, uh, the United Nations Security Council pushed is for reconciliation or what we call the, the Gulf Initiative. That another intervention in the uh, foreign intervention, however we understood it, but bear in mind, Yemen is in the Gulf region. And yet it is not a member of the JCC. Consequently, one clearly see that such attempt is a foreign intervention. So you have the role of, of the, the coalition led by the Saudis in Yemen is a major force. And what that force did is to protect the regions and particularly Saudi Arabia's interest, the United States along with that. And there they were also not very uh, supportive for a, a, a solution that will end also with contribute to the resolution. Case in point, they launched back, I think, a national dialogue uh, that lasts for about nine months around uh, 2013. And uh, one of the, the failure of that, uh, of that national dialogue is its agreement on the first of creating what you call a national united Yemen, while leaving the, uh, the question of how this federation will function, particularly how many regions will be the sort of uh, structured, uh, the geography of this federation, uh, and the number of how many states or whatever regions you are going to have. Subsequent to that, the two major parties at the time agreed uh, to designate six uh, regions and assign the Houthis uh, to the, the mountainous areas with no access to waters or sea. So that's that's the second variable that would be when the UN today supports or support at the time the, uh, uh, the national dialogue, that also should be uh, functioning. The third problem, I think, uh, with foreign intervention, beside what it brought its emphasis, particularly the United States on uh, 
the threat of Al-Qaeda, the threat of terrorism, without looking, uh, having a comprehensive strategy or an exit strategy, is the way it approached the, the political solutions. It is advocating for a political solution, which is the same thing we've, we've seen in Libya, uh, and sort of postponing or taking a step-by-step a resolution of the, of the military conflict by believing that if you take one area uh, control under one, uh, one city, you can move to the other city. In other words, this strategic incremental approach in resolving the military problem is a serious uh, business. The whole point from all of this is that foreign intervention in Yemen has exacerbated the crisis and contributed to its uh, continuance uh, without, uh, because of the mere fact that it did not, or it, it has yet to address the fundamental root causes of the Yemeni crisis. And returning back to the economic issue that I started with is one area perhaps we should be, the international organization should be focused. Now, Charles Schmitz, Yemen is one of these conflicts that certainly has you know, these local conditions that at least in part seems to date back to the unification of the country and questions of identity. I know these ethnic questions are sometimes you know, even kind of described as tribal or, or clannish kinds of, uh, kinds of conflicts that seem to date back to the fact Yemen during the Cold War was divided and then unified at the end of the Cold War. I've always sort of wrestled with this question. Is this a country that that should seek to divide? Or is there a way to bridge the gap between North Yemenis and South Yemenis to actually create a common Yemeni identity? That's a good question. So both North and South Yemen, both the the socialist state in the South and and the state in the North claimed Yemen. And and Yemenis always uh, saw themselves as a single nation some exceptions, but but basically there's a strong sense of everybody being Yemeni. And at the time of unification in, in 1990, it was extremely popular. Uh, people coming together. I, I was working in the South at the time and, and uh, people were really looking forward to unity. Um, they they thought of you know the, the idea of political liberalism and, and the economic advantages that the combination of the South and the North and the, the experience the Southerners that experienced, you know, uh, long years of British colonialism and then Soviet uh, colonialism, in effect, uh, which they learned a lot from. And so they knew how to run a state and they had state building capabilities and they could help the North that didn't have those, but had a lot more people and, and other resources and, and uh, that it would be a, a great opportunity. Uh, that opportunity soured quickly. Um, and it deteriorated to the war in 1994, in which, in effect, the North uh, liquidated uh, the South. And at that point, Southerners took a different view uh, of what was happening because uh, basically Ali Dalasalak's rule regime came down, and they were like carpetbaggers. And they just they saw that they they saw the Southerners, regardless of who they were in their politics, as you know others and a uh, you know opportunities to, to exploit. And that unified the South. And so the, the sort of the, the North-South split uh, on the level of people and then the origins of what we see today of the movement for succession, of recreation of the third day, that's a result of the experience of the war and what happened after the war in 1994. So it's not something that's fundamental to identity or, or it's just the, the treatment that, that happened there. But 
Uh, what we should say is that the South is very divided about that. Hadi is a Southerner. Hadi comes from Abya. And those that are around him, you know, they're all Southerners. Hadi was a socialist. He was a socialist military guy. So, so the STC, the Southern Transitional Council, the one that runs Aiden right now, and that's got Emirati backing, you know, that's, that's sort of the core of a faction within, that was in the Southern state, in the socialist state. Um, and even within that region of Lahij and Aden and Dahlia, there's people who do not support the STC. There's actually a lot of people that don't support the STC. The question of what to do with that, and the guys out in Hadamount, the, the far eastern part, which is if not far from Marib, they don't want anything to do with the western part, with, with the Adenese and whatnot. So, you know, there's not consensus on a southern succession or something like that. There is consensus that... Uh, that the South has been exploited by the North. That, that there is consensus on, but not on what to do for a future state. Of course, the Houthis now have been seen as Northerners. For the South, the, much of the, they just see the Houthis as another version of a Northern invasion trying to go after them. And so they, they can unite around anti-Houthiism. They can unite around keeping the Houthi out. But beyond that, there, there's a lot of work to be done. So how would Sally... I guess one of the enduring questions for me is since, you know, as we've stated before, there's not really all that many oil reserves in Yemen. Yemen's a poor country. It was, prior to the conflict, it was one of the poorest countries. And since the conflict, it is one of the two or three poorest countries in the world. Why is there so much international interest in this conflict? What are the Saudis, the Iranians, and then ultimately you know, the Americans? What's drawing them to this conflict? There is the geography which places the country, the port of Aden, for example, as a strategic, from a geostrategic perspective. That location is very significant. But there is also the other variable that uh, uh, Yemen became a center uh, for regional competition or proxy for wars. It gives uh, the Saudis who are worried uh, and the Yemenis who are worried about their borders, their countries, uh, national interest, but also it gives some strategic depth uh, to the Iranian uh, by supporting a movement that has uh, serious problems uh, with uh, Yemen, the support of external forces, namely Saudi Arabia in this case. And it has worked for the Iranian. We've seen this in Lebanon. We've seen it in Syria. And if we put it in perspective, it was the doctrine, uh, George W. Bush, a preemptive uh, doctrine in which, you know, we invaded Iraq for the purpose of regime change. And we would either, we had a choice either to go to Syria to change it or Iran. That was the prevailing view at the time strategically. So the Iranian had concerns from that perspective. So it provided a ground for this kind of, for a strategic uh, depth uh, for regional powers. And I think those are the two variables that one consider when we think of Yemen. The other thing is, you know, this is a very rich country in culture. It has a lot of meaning for the, the Muslims. Uh, so it also has that value as well. And uh, when you look at the countries that are affected from the Arab perspective, the, the, these are the countries that have a long history and a rich culture in, in the minds of the, of, of the Arab world. So it also fits into that notion of uh, yet another uh, civilization attack or Western attack, imperial attack against a country that is one of the roots of the Islamic uh, traditions and the Arab culture. 
And Charles Schmitz, I know the U.S. has been interested in Yemen really since even the days before 9-11 because of the attack uh, on the USS Cole in the port of Aden, and that the U.S. has been operating militarily, largely under the auspices, you know, the fighting the global war and terror, and and has actually stated this when the uh, Pentagon was asked under the AUMF, the Authorization of the Use of Military Force Resolution, Congress asked who is the U.S. at war with, and the U.S. cited Yemen. Is the U.S.'s major interest uh, in Yemen fighting global terrorism, or are there other major interests at play uh, for the Americans? It was terrorism. So the the United States for the longest time um, sort of took the lead from Saudi Arabia. Really, a lot of this conflict is that that the Saudis fear Yemen. It's they've got a long border. And um, there are more Yemeni nationals than there are nationals of all the, the Gulf states combined, including Saudi Arabia. So they see all kinds of threats from uh, Yemen. And the Saudis want to be um, the most influential foreign power in, in Yemen. They see their security in being the most influential foreign power in, in Yemen. And that's why they're so upset with the Houthis, because the Houthis won't deal and furthermore, they're getting their friends with Iran. So, I mean, that's just the nightmare. That's just the worst nightmare possible for the Saudis. The Americans, uh, Yemen's a very complex, very complex place. And it takes, you know, a lot of astute uh, observation and time and experience. And the, and the Americans didn't, uh, they just let the Saudis tell them what to do until about unification, I think. And that was where, you know, Saudi and U.S. interests diverged because the Saudis backed the Southerners trying to re- extract revenge against the Arab al-Salah who had backed uh, Saddam Hussein. And uh, at that point, the United States was against the war. The United States wanted, uh, you know, fighting not to happen. Um, and at that point, the United States was interested in stability. It's both stability because the United States is the power is the, the regional power and, and doesn't want revolutions and upheavals and all this. Uh, and it's connected with terrorism as well. And, and uh, yes, the, the United States, under Obama, in fact, it was Obama that really expanded the drone campaign uh, against Al-Qaeda in Yemen. And it was under the AMUF of, of 9-11. Um, it was seen as you know still fighting Al-Qaeda. Um, it wasn't seen as, as fighting Yemen, uh, and in fact, what's interesting about this, we'll, we'll bring it circle around. Uh, Hussein al-Houthi, who's the founder of the Houthi movement, he was very much against, he admired Iran, um, but, but he admired Iran in its geopolitical stance. In other words, he saw you know, the, a principled stance against U.S.-Israeli uh, hegemony in the Middle East. That was his main stance. And he saw the Yemeni regime as sort of... Uh, subservient to the Americans, and it was in particular with the war on terror. Uh, but then secondly, the, the lead up to the war in Iraq, um, and which uh, Hussein al-Houthi interpreted as, you know, just in another uh, imperial war of the Americans to, to, to maintain their hegemony in the region. Um, and uh, he, he played that very astutely in Yemen. And, and that's the origins of the Houthi movement. He upset Ali al Assad so much that Ali al Assad sent the military against him and, uh, you know, eventually the, the Houthi won. <laughs> the Houthi, you know, they fought long, long insurgent wars against the, uh, the Yemeni military that had their origins in precisely this, this, this issue of, of uh, you know, the, the U.S. involvement uh, in, in Yemen. You're listening to Scholar's Circle, scholarscircle.org. I'm Doug Becker.
We're discussing the Yemeni war with Charles Schmitz of Towson University and Hamoud Sali of California State University, Dominguez Hills. And I know that the previous administration, Hamoud Sali had really emphasized the need for the U.S. to ally themselves with the Saudis for a whole host of reasons, but I think most notably was the Trump administration's opposition to Iran, that they saw that Saudi Arabia as the most likely uh, partner to help to contain Iranian power. And Yemen seems to be really the battleground for a lot of this, this question of containment. How much do you expect that sort of unwavering support of the Saudis to continue now that we have a new administration? It's hard to say. On the one hand, uh, I believe the first statement that this administration made uh, was to recognize the, uh, uh, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and to push for a, a diplomatic political solution, uh, typical of what uh, President Joe Biden has been saying through engagement of international uh, community, and in this case, perhaps the GCC along the line of the uh, Gulf initiatives uh, for Yemen. At the same time, the president made sure uh, to acknowledge the, uh, uh, the interest or the right of the Saudis to have weapons uh, for uh, self-defense. Uh, and he stopped there uh, from clarifying what those weapons were. He also removed the Houthis from the list of terrorist uh, groups or individuals, and thus opening the door for certain kind of, of dialogue. I think what's happened in Yemen and probably in Syria, and I could take it further in Libya, and, and the role in the United States playing this will be linked to Iran's nuclear deal and the vision of this administration of how it wants to see and how bad it wants that deal. If Biden is set to uh, do all he can, as we have seen here, what's happening in Yemen is an indication or, or could be easily related to how they perceive the negotiation with Iran and where they go. So far, we've seen mixed signals. And in that perspective, I think it's good to emphasize the humanitarian issue, which the Houthi said, we want to separate that. That's a real cause. I think that should be taken away from presenting a solution uh, for Yemen. Uh, it's good to do, to do that. It's good to push uh, for the uh, political solution. And I think the direction is going in that, in that area, despite the complication at this point. Uh, but I, I don't see the, this administration engaged fully in uh, resolving this conflict without looking at how Iran will react. So resolution to, to it will be based on that. The support for the Saudis is very clear. Uh, former President Donald Trump was very uh, sort of uh, clear uh, in his, uh, his interest that the Saudis presented a good business deal and he would not sacrifice it. That's his words. Uh, Joe Biden emphasis of democracy, human rights, cooperative uh, uh, sort of relation, engaging international law. When you look at the implementation of it, you really don't see that. There is so much there embedded in what President Donald Trump has made, has taken, except for the fact that 
President Joe Biden is now reaching more to Iran than uh, President Donald Trump. But that also poses a question, a serious question. What kind of uh, relationship that this administration will want with the Saudis? Uh, because the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates in particular, don't want to approach more with the Iranian because they see that as an enemy. And then the, the whole idea of what, what is appear most likely is that this alliance between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, and the engagement of the Arab normalization, all these factors at play uh, that will have a significant impact on how the United States is willing or is going to resolve and how much it wants to deal with the Iranians. And um, Hamid Sali referenced this humanitarian crisis. Just to put this in perspective, according to, to UNICEF, currently 24 million people are considered at risk, about 80% of Yemen's population at a humanitarian risk, including more than 12 million children. It's been described as the greatest humanitarian disaster, certainly the largest humanitarian disaster. And then on top of that, of course, has been the COVID-19 pandemic, which has done nothing but just exacerbated these, these challenges, making conditions all the worse in Yemen. So Charles Schmitz, how much is the Biden administration compelled to act based on these humanitarian grounds, and then add to that the other complication under the Trump administration, which is the relationship with Saudi Arabia came under fire because of Saudi actions, specifically the assassination of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which had Congress starting to raise questions as to whether the U.S.'s unwavering support for the Saudis, in particular in the war in Yemen, was warranted. So do you expect there's going to be a change as a result of this new presidency? I'm with Hamoud. Uh, in the sense that, look, the U.S.-Saudi uh, relationship is a very old one. It goes back to, by legend, a, a meeting on a ship, but Roosevelt and, and uh, King Abdulaziz uh, at the end of World War II. But the U.S. Uh, in the Middle East still, it's, it's, its major ally is the Saudis and the Gulf states. Uh, you know, that's the GCC was created in 1981 after the, the revolution in Iran. And that's where the U.S. positioned itself. And basically, the U.S. is still there. Trump basically gave the Saudis a, a blank check to do anything they wanted. And he wasn't really paying attention. Here, Biden and Congress, they want more accountability. But, you know, nobody has sort of said, well, you know, <laughs> this is a strategic ally. And, and what, you know, what kind of a relationship are we going to have here, given the realities? And most of them don't know a whole lot about the realities, I, I think, frankly, of the region. So I, I don't expect a lot. On the uh, humanitarian front, look, Yemen in the modern era, since the founding of the republics in, in, in the 60s, it, it had two sort of economic booms. The, the first one was remittances. As the OPEC price hike happened and, and, uh, and you know, the Gulf states had a construction booms, it was Yemen that sort of, Yemeni labor that, that built it all. And then as that economy changed and, and Yemenis uh, came home, uh, Yemen got its own oil and Yemen had kind of its, its own uh, oil boom. And the oil boom, you know, sort of kept Yemen afloat through the 2000s and even, in, you know, up until recently. The oil was running out. Peak oil in Yemen was like 2001. And uh, it's been going down and down ever since. And there's, there's probably not a whole lot more. Of course, the war and instability has prevented any kind of new exploration, but, but uh, you know, there's not a whole lot more there. Um, and so Yemen was facing, just as the war broke out, Yemen was facing a severe economic crisis. Anyway, uh, Hamoud referenced the oil, the fuel subsidies. 
And that was an issue and, and the government was going broke. And uh, it was time for the country to pull together and face uh, a very difficult uh, transition uh, to a non-oil economy. Uh, and instead of doing that, the country broke down and had political fights and went to war. And so part of the humanitarian crisis is the fact that, that Yemen was facing a, a tough economic transition to a post-hydrocarbon economy and basically didn't, didn't do it and instead went to war. And during the war, of course, infrastructure has been destroyed. I mean, that's the real criticism of the Saudis is kind of like, you know, their war effort didn't work in the initial period and they seem to take revenge by just blowing everything they possibly could up. And so, uh, you know, medical facilities and bridges and communications and, and all these sorts of things that have exacerbated the humanitarian situation. So they've lost the income. A, a big portion, actually, of the GDP was, was government salaries. And that's all gone because the oil is gone. And uh, Yemen had been importing a large percentage of its food. Um, that has shifted since the war. Uh, farmers have sort of shifted some of their production. But, but people's income, people don't have income. And it's become a war economy. So the Houthi live off of kind of... Uh, a severe taxation, and they control the oil in the north, and so they control uh, some of the, the markets in the north. They've been sort of scraping by with that. The Emirates are paying salaries for their people, and, and the Saudis are paying salaries for the other, and, and so it's sort of a, a warlord economy. That's basically what we have, a warlord economy, uh, and the way you survive is becoming a soldier. If you've, you've got a soldier, you get a, you, you know, if somebody in the family is a is fighting, they, they get some pay. That helps them to get through. And, you know, if you're not, then you're you're in tough straits. And uh, so the humanitarian situation, all the things you mentioned, the, there's been cholera outbreaks of medical stuff, the, the, the coronavirus uh, as well has hit, uh, and it's actually hitting right now. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the Houthi former chiefs of staff apparently just died of coronavirus. There's a wave that, that's hitting right now. Um, all these things are on top of a fundamental crisis that was happening even before the war broke out. Um, so yes, and, and the international community has been giving. So, so we've got a, an economy that the beginning of the war was about 30 billion. Um, right now it's, it's, it's estimated to be about half that, about $15 billion. And uh, aid has been, you know, 3 billion, 4 billion. And that 3 or 4 billion, in, a, in addition to remittances that folks are sending in from outside of Yemen to family members and whatnot, that's what's keeping Yemen alive right now. And they depend on it. So there's got to be, there's got to be humanitarian relief and countries have got to step up and, and keep it going or it's going to be really serious. So this is my last question. I'm going to ask both of you. I'll start with Hamoud uh, with this. We painted a picture of just humanitarian disaster and suffering in Yemen and this complicated conflict. The last question is, how do we see a pathway to peace? I know that one of the challenges has been that the United Nations has a framework for peace. In essence, the Houthis must surrender power and then they can negotiate their way into some sort of a coalition within uh, a, you know, a post-conflict government. Of course, the Houthis control the capital city, so it's unreasonable to think that they're going to surrender that, surrender the city in order to try to negotiate their way back into that. So I guess it's kind of two questions. What are the role of the Houthis in these negotiations, and, and you know, does this framework need to change? And if it does, how could you suggest that we, we could change these conditions or you know, change the peace framework to match the conditions on the ground 
we might eventually come to uh, some sort of a resolution then this conflict? I think the attitude must change of, of both parties that they view the conflict as not sort of, and it's hard to say this, a zero-sum game, but rather a win-win solution for all. Now, the Houthis uh, were blamed, or some blamed them, uh, for not giving the, uh, a political solution a chance uh, back in 2015 when uh, the army collapsed, when the Yemeni collapsed, and the, uh, the whole violence began. Uh, at the time, uh, they objected at the uh, plan, uh, which made them uh, sort of not uh, truly representative in the transition government or in the plan uh, for the future uh, Yemen, uh, specifically, that they were not seen as, as a major power. What happened since then is that the Houthis uh, proved to be uh, a very important power. They have the military leverage, but uh, the Houthis at one point or another must come back uh, to uh, the negotiation table. And began, I hate to say serious negotiation, but began uh, working in a national dialogue. That national dialogue, when, when it started, they were part of it. For nine months, they were negotiating, over 500 people participating. It presented a core uh, for raising uh, national issues. And the main issue at this point, from my perspective, that needs to be addressed is the division of power. We have to sort of take into account uh, that uh, cabinet ministries, uh, that, that power has to be shared and where uh, the Houthis uh, could benefit from that. In one of the transition government, we had, I think, about 34 ministers. The two parties did not even allow them to have two. So the problem of the Houthi is very, very important. In other words, you have to create a system where it is representative of all the major uh, political actors. The United Nations Security Council talks about the youth, uh, the women, uh, and the separatists in the South. Connected to that is really the most important thing, is an economic plan where we have to find a solution to ease the burden, this humanitarian burden on the Yemenis. And of course, on the top of that is, you know, we've seen this in Libya, the emphasis on a ceasefire, no intervention in the case of Libya of foreign countries or mercenaries. I think the United Nations Security Council, and maybe this is just uh, asking for the moon, uh, must really be, be serious about uh, the militarization of this conflict. The introduction of drones uh, making the war a very, a very easy to hit places and so on and so forth. And it's on both sides. And what's happening today with attacking Saudi facilities and so on and so forth is clear indication that the root of the problems must be addressed. And one of them is how to address the, the militarization of this conflict and, and in ways that would contribute to the recovery of, of the economy, uh, the political solution and the inclusion of all parties, including the Houthis, and more so in the, and not just in the dialogue, but the actual implementation of the institutions that serve them, and including perhaps how to make this federation or Yemeni united and the federal system that is representative of the Yemeni. Uh, the Arabs will tell you, get out all the foreign problems, let the Yemenis handle it, and we will be okay. But that's maybe also a long dream, I don't know, yeah. And Charles Schmitz, I'll give you the last uh, word. You've written a piece called No Winners in Yemen. Is there a scenario where there could potentially be 
winners or at least satisficers who are willing to lay down their weapons to end this conflict? You know, I'm, at, at the moment, I'm pessimistic. Hamoud was referencing the UN Resolution 2216, and that one clearly is not realistic at all. It's, you know, going to go by the side that the Houthi are the government in, in the, you know, they, they govern, you know, I don't know what it is, 70% of the population or something like this, and they're well entrenched. Nobody trusts each other at this point. The Houthi are not real trustable, you know, for the people outside. And I don't see a political solution. The only thing that, uh, let me preface that by saying, you know, I do see the Houthi and the Saudis being able to work it out. The Houthis and the Saudis could work it out. Um, you know, basically the, the Saudis want the attacks to stop and the Houthis have the capability of doing that. The Houthis have control and they can, they can stop. The Houthi want the ports open. The, right now there's a UN inspection uh, regime that's inspecting for weapons to keep uh, weapons from arriving. And so it doesn't work, but, <laughs> but there is that there. And the Houthi want that released, which of course would allow the, the Houthi to get more arms. But I think the Saudis and the, and the Houthi could come to agreement. The problem is the Houthi and the rest of Yemen can't come to an agreement. And just the, the political distance is just too far. The only thing, and this is here, this is my shoot for the moon, came from what Hamoud was saying is that, that the one big thing that everybody would get everybody's attention is the economy. Because the economic situation is really desperate. And that's part of the fight for Marib right now. That's why the Houthi want the Houthi want the gas and, and oil revenues. If there was economic hope, but the thing about it is that, that would require so much sort of outside support and smart, well-designed outside support. I'm not sure that the international community is capable of that, but that would be a game changer. That would get everyone's attention and that would facilitate other, other things. So generally I'm pessimistic, uh, but if I want to shoot for the moon, you know, something along economic deals for me would bring people together. Sadly, being pessimistic and specializing in Yemen seemed to be a connection that makes far too much sense. We've been discussing the ongoing war in Yemen, the humanitarian disaster, the role of international actors, and whether the U.S. might shift its policies with a new administration. Our guests have been Hamoud Sali, the Associate Dean of International Education and Senior International Officer and Professor of Political Science at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is a commentator for Arabic media. And Charles Schmitz, Professor of Geography at Towson University in Baltimore, Maryland. He is an affiliated scholar with the Middle East Institute in Washington, DC, and the author of several publications, including Negotiating Yemeni Peace, Deep Divisions and Hard Realities, No Winners in Yemen, and The Historical Dictionary of Yemen.